From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, UNC Charlotte history professor Karen Cox returns to discuss her new book, Goat Castle, A True Story of Murder, Race, and the Gothic South. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. I want to tell you a story. A story about the Deep South. A story about the Gothic South, complete with mansions and eclectic characters. The story also contains murder, intrigue, race, and injustice. Now before you rack your brain or begin a feverish Google search to find the movie or novel that I might be referring, if it were a movie or a novel, it would be a situation where art imitates life. It is, however, a true story. It's a true story of the Goat Castle murder in Natchez, Mississippi in 1932. And it is captured wonderfully by my guest, UNC Charlotte history professor Karen Cox in her new book, Goat Castle, A True Story of Murder, Race, and the Gothic South. Author John Grisham writes, A highly entertaining story about a long-forgotten murder. It is also a reminder of the racism and intolerance found in Southern history and how difficult change has been. It is a terrific read. It is my pleasure to have Professor Karen Cox return to The Public Morality. Professor Karen Cox, welcome back to The Public Morality. Hey, I'm glad to be with you again. Goat Castle, a true story <laughs> of murder, race, and the Gothic South. Uh, I, I'd like to have you expand on it, but the title pretty much serves as an extremely uh, accurate encapsulation of the story. Yeah. Well, um, what part of it you want me to expand on? Well, just give, just give us give us a a. a, a, a a, just a brief synopsis of the book. Uh. Okay. Well, it's it's essentially a, a true crime story. It was a, um, the murder of a of a woman descended from the planter aristocracy in 1932 in Natchez, Mississippi, which was a town that prided itself on its southern aristocracy, it's the you know old planter families from Natchez, and uh, she was murdered in her home. It was a botched robbery. And, uh, the, but, but what happened was that the story became about her neighbors, uh, a couple named, there weren't an official couple, but two people named Dick Dana and Octavia Dockery, and they were her neighbors on the neighboring estate, 
in Natchez and lived in a house called Glenwood, but uh, they were the first arrested, Dick Dane and Octavia Dockery, because they had feuded for years and years with Jenny Merrill, the woman who was murdered. And so uh, as soon as they were arrested, uh, though the story of their lives becomes, becomes public, and so what, what the media discovers is that these two people are living in absolute filth in a crumbling down Adam Bellin mansion, and they keep a pen of goats in their house. And so they nicknamed the house Goat Castle. They nicknamed Dick Dana the wild man because he's uh, essentially mentally deficient and likes to live around the in the woods of the estate, and then Octavia Dockery becomes known as the goat woman. So this, they, <clears throat> it just becomes a media frenzy over them, but, but embedded within the story, of course, is this, is a, a story of racial injustice, um, because uh, while Dane and Dockery's prints were found inside Jenny Merrill's home, and were certainly accessories, in this attempt to rob her, um, they got to go home on their own recognizance. And a black woman named Emily Burns, who was a domestic, who was uh, uh, a friend of the likely perpetrator, and uh, she's the only one to uh, be put, indicted for the murder, the only living person to be indicted for the murder. And she's, convicted and sent to Parchman Prison, uh, which is the Mississippi State Penitentiary in the Delta. It's really one of the worst prisons in the nation at the time because it's run like an old, run like a plantation, and they treat convicts like slaves. So it, it's this story of, you know, what happens to the planner class, what you know, descendants of the planter class. What happens to the descendants of slaves, and how both of these groups kind of meet together on this fateful night in August fourth, nineteen thirty-two, and uh, and kind of what happens to them. Now, you you mentioned um, in the previous answer uh, that. Um this uh, story received national attention. Could you expand on that? I mean, how did this, because I don't think of Natchez, Mississippi as being some media, you know, uh, epicenter. So how, how did this receive national attention? Right, right. Well, there's a couple of reasons. It, while it may appear not to be, it may be, appear to be an insignificant place, it's actually a quite significant place in the history of the country. Natchez was, um, known as a place where there were more millionaires per capita than any other town in the United States of America in the years before the Civil War. And the reason for that was cotton and slaves. And so these families were well, well known, and they knew them in, uh, in the North because several of them were Northerners who had invested in, uh, in land and slaves and cotton uh, in the Antebellum period. Uh, they had gone to Natchez. Uh, in the 20th century, though, um, you know, obviously Natchez was not the same place um, by 1932. But that spring, right before the murder had taken place, 
the local members of the Garden Club decided to open their old Annabelle and Mansion for tours to the public. And it was, even in the midst of the Depression, it was wildly successful, and it was being covered in the New York Times, it was being covered in uh, uh, national magazines, uh, Saturday Evening Post, Ladies Home Journal, you know, things like that. And so it was sort of on people's radar. And then the woman who was murdered was uh, not only a descendant of those families, but she was, uh, her father uh, had been the ambassador to Belgium for Ulysses Grant. Uh, and so that would have gotten people's attention. And so, so there's, that's where Natchez had the attention um, because, you know, so when, but then, the other part of this story and why it gets national attention is, is in addition to those links to the Old South, which in popular culture in the 1930s would draw people in, there was also um, this story of the de- decline of Southern civilization, the Gothic South, um, and, uh, and so uh, and represented by goat castle and the people who lived in it and so uh that became part of making it a national story but then there was and then the third piece of this is that in the 1930s true crime stories sold newspapers they were you know especially if they were a people i mean obviously they have the the cops and robbers stories of the 30s you know the the gangster stories of people like Al Capone or, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, people like that. But what you had here was, um, uh, you know, a story that had all kinds of elements to it that kept kept it in the papers for several weeks. Um, and uh, and usually it, of these true crime stories revolved around people of wealth kind of being taken out, you know, somehow, you know, um, that, that somehow there's something... Um, salacious about their lives that they've ended up being murdered. One of the things in in reading the book that that I was struck by is that while this is, you know, not a work of nonfiction, a work of nonfiction, Mm -hmm. it felt very much like I was reading a novel of fiction, that this was something that you just, you created. And I'm, I'm sort of, Every turn, I'm, I'm sort of right there, like, what's going to happen now, even though I have an idea what's, <laughs> what's going to happen? So, you know, I'm, it was almost feeling like, and I'm sure you've got these um, comparisons prior, but it had, I say, somewhere between uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil and Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. It, was, it felt like somewhere between those two. Yeah, I mean, certainly, um, a very, I remember... The first time I saw Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, I thought, "Oh my goodness, this is these are these people I'm writing about, or I'm you know getting ready to write about." Um, and there is some quirkiness. I've heard a lot. I have heard those comparisons with Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And uh, the reason that you know, while I'm a historian, and I tri- you know, and historians are known for writing academic treatises, <laughs> I knew that this was not something that could be told in that way and so but I still use the skills of the historian uh, to to recover the information that's in this story and to and so you're you're getting history without you know getting the jargon that you often get in a lot of history books 
Um, and it had to be written in a way, um, I think, because it was a, it is a good story. I mean, I, I would have done it. I would have it would have been an injustice to write it in any other way. Well, you know, I, I'm you just got me thinking. I'm I'm still on classic movies as I, as, as we're talking about this, but you can even make you can even make the comparison between. Emily Burns and um, Tom Robinson in um, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Just I had, you know what? I hadn't thought about that, but I appreciate <laughs> that you brought that up because, yeah, there was just, yeah, because there was uh, something about that that just, you know, just because of the color of your skin, you're going to be, you know, made to pay for a crime whether you committed it or not in the Jim Crow South, you know. And uh, and she certainly did. And uh, I just, I, 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 you know, I met members of her family. She she didn't have children, but she had siblings and cousins and second cousins. And I mean, she didn't have siblings. I'm sorry, she was an only child and didn't have children. But she had came from a large family, and there were lots of cousins and second cousins. And so I met the second cousins. They were young girls. Uh, who knew her, and but when they, you know, when they knew her before her death, and that they're now, you know, in their sixties and seventies, um, and um, meeting them, and and they were the ones that helped me to find a photograph of Emily, just made her come to life in a way that, while I had been researching her story for a few years, that I couldn't have written this book without her. This is the problem about the way the story has been retold in Natchez year, you know, decade after decade. She's been left out of the story, and I'm always thinking, how can you write about this crime without telling Emily Burns' story? And so that, that was um, a goal of mine. That was an objective of mine to, to, to recover her story. And, and, and really, in doing so, really tell you the complete story of what happened that night in 1932. At the time of the murder in 1932, how did the locals, just given how, how you talked about the sort of the aristocracy in Natchez, how did the locals view um, the Goat Castle? It's, it's, it's hard to know. Now, there were a lot of local blacks who lived in the community around them. Um, they worked... Um, probably for Jenny Merrill uh, on her estate. Um, but they lived in the area. This was the suburban area. They called it the suburban area of, of Natchez, which is only about a mile outside of town. But they probably were still working on um, local estates um, there. And so they probably had seen the house. Some of them may have even helped uh, Dick Dane and Octavia die, where they knew the situation over there. And I ran across an article, which I believe to be true, because it was so early on in the in media coverage, where a journalist says, well, that that local blacks in that community nicknamed them the wild man and the goat woman. Okay, so which I thought was an important detail. Um, so they knew. But the, the white community in Natchez didn't seem to be aware except for people who showed up from time to time, maybe people who were logging trees off the estate or, um, but more importantly, the sheriff's office, the sheriff and the sheriff's deputies who were 
coming out to settle disputes between Jenny Merrill and Octavia Dockery on a pretty regular basis. So they knew about it, but no one really knew until they were arrested for the for Merrill's murder and photographs of their house uh, were um, were taken and put in local and pa- and national papers, but also just photographs of the two of them. Because you look at that photograph that's in my book of of the couple that lived at Go Castle. Um, You'll know, you can just look at Dick Dana and know there's something not right there. <laughs> well, I, I'm actually looking at, I have your book in my hand, I'm looking at him right now, and there is a, dare I say, Charles Manson resemblance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you might say that. There's a little wild-eyed yeah. look about him. Yeah. And well, he, you know, he, he like, I would, there are other photographs, I just couldn't get them all in the book. They're They're fascinating because he's, he has a sort of kooky grin on his face. I mean, it's, I, I, I think that comparison is probably a pretty good one in terms of, you know, just the image itself, um, not, not necessarily what, you know, what occurred, but just the image of someone who's not, who's clearly mentally unstable. Now, and then Octavia Dockery, though, I think she, that image of her captures her because she's very cunning individual. Now, for, speaking about um, uh, uh, Dana and um, uh, Octavia, they, they um, Dockery, they, further than that injustice beyond Emily Burns is that they, at least for a while, sort of parlayed this Goat Castle murder into some sort of celebrity status for them. Was that, is that, did I get that right? Is that sort of... Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I, yeah. This, I guess this would have been a form of celebrity, you know, a notoriety. Let's say they were, they ex- exploited their notoriety. No one, you know, you know, and while they were still charged with murder, because those charges were never dropped. So they were, while they did not go, were never put on trial, those murder charges always remained. And so while they were charged with murder, they were allowed to go home on their own recognizance. And while and 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 what had happened while they were in jail was people were curious about this house that is they're calling Goat Castle, and hundreds of people show up. They drive to Natchez. They want to see this house, and and they you know trespass on the property and go inside the house and take things from it. And so, as soon as they get out, as soon as they get back home, they decide they. That they're going to open. If people want to come, we're going to charge money. So they charged twenty-five cents to to come onto the grounds of Goat Castle. And then, once the house had been cleaned up enough, because <laughs> it was a mess, um, then they could come inside the house for an extra twenty-five cents. Which, in the middle of the depression, I mean, this is the depth of the depression. Fifty cents is a lot to people. And uh, when you consider what a movie was a nickel or a dime, you know, so um, so they they did that, and then they themselves went on a tour of towns in Louisiana and Mississippi, and actually ha- went were introduced on stage as the Wild Man and the Goat Woman of Goat Castle. 
again, they're still un- have murder charges pending against them, and they're out there doing this, making money on it. It's, it's just the crazy, some of the craziest stuff you ever heard. And then, clearly, as you get closer to the to the November grand jury, where the sheriff is planning to submit evidence against them, they calm down a little bit, and you know, and they they stop that for a while. But once the once it becomes clear that they're not going to be indicted, and Emily Burns will be the one that goes to prison, they start back up again, and they uh, offer uh, for the next several years will offer tours of Goat Castle under the pretense that they were going to uh, renovate the house, which they never did. Now the, the, the house is no longer standing, is it? No, no, it was. Sold in the mid '50s and became a, a mid-century, you know, ranch development. But they named it Glenwood, which was the original name of the house. The neighborhood is known as Glenwood, and they named and then one of the main streets is Dana Drive. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. But you know, it had been. It's interesting because it had been Dana's. Uh, ancestral home. I mean, he had he was born in that. Uh, on that estate, but he had long, long ago had lost the money uh, that he had inherited, and he had he had no way of maintaining this large antebellum home uh, that had been bequeathed to him. And so, over the course of some years, he lost the estate to for his inability to, to pay taxes on the property. And and this is what's interesting is that while it was always discussed in the papers, this was his estate, he and uh, Octavia Dockery were essentially squatters. Uh, and they played on the public sympathy for their situation. And there were a series of owners who just would say, you know, probably were like playing hot potato with it, getting rid of it to the next person and hopes that they could get rid, rid of them or evict them from the estate. And every time, Octavia Dockery would find a way to keep that estate with them and play on public sympathy. And so the two of them stayed there until their death. Uh, 19, he died in 1948, and she died in 1949. And uh, it wasn't until then that the owners were able to sell the property. Yeah, I guess death is a, a form of eviction, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it took that. It actually took that. I, I it's amazing to me, uh, like how they they moved in there in 1916 and never owned the property, and died on that estate in 1949, having never paid a nickel. <laughs> wow, I. That's your next assignment is, is the find, <laughs> is to research how they did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know how they did it. I kind, you know, they basically were, you know, you know, Octavia Dodger was a litigious person, and she'd somehow find a loophole in the wall or whatever to keep them there. So somehow she managed it. Somehow she managed it. But again, it's you know the while that is the. That is what initially drew me to the story. That is this quirky hair in the house and these goats and, like, what's going on there? You know, of course, I wanted to research that, but 
what really took over for me was the story of Emily Byrne, you know, as, a, as an author. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor Karen Cox uh, from the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and author of Goat Castle, A True Story of Murder, Race, and the Gothic South. And since you mentioned um, uh, Emily Burns, uh, let's segue to her for a moment. You know, one of the things that was struck, because we, we are talking about the Jim Crow era in the South, and you write, quote, Murder of a white woman meant the conviction of a black person. Now, now, though Emily Burns received a life sentence uh, for for the murder of Jenny Merrill, but you write it was a life sentence because the jury couldn't agree on the punishment. Could say more about that, if you would. Right. Well, if we can go back up just a little bit, mm -hmm. there there was a man who she was probably enamored with, that she know, knew as Pink, Pinkney Williams. She called him Pink. And he'd come to Natchez that summer, the summer, you know, in July, and he, um, he introduced himself to her as Pinkney Williams. He was probably born in Natchez in Adams County as Lawrence Williams. But he went by a na the name of George Pearl in Chicago, where he had migrated many years before. But in the Depression, he was back in town. He was meeting. He was gone to visit family, and he went looking for work because he had worked there um, as a young man. He had even worked uh, for Jenny Merrill's cousin Duncan Miner, and so he was there to work. Uh, he, and he wasn't having any success, and so. You know, he met Dana and Dockery, and they kind of crafted the plan that they would rob Jenny Merrill, and he was likely the trigger person in this. Um, and so, as I said, Emily had gone with him that night, you know, and so she kind of got up, caught up in a bad situation in which she couldn't get away because he threatened to kill her. That, that's according to her own confession. And, and then... She was she was going to be eventually found out because she he had lived with her and left his belongings behind as he was headed back to Chicago, um, which he did that that late that night. She um, and so but he gets killed completely in an unrelated incident on his way back because this is a Jim Crow style and any strange black man they say strange what it meant was they just didn't know this man as a local person. Uh, they were going to, um, uh, th they picked him up, you know, and they said he was resisting arrest and they shot him. So that left Emily Burns as the only person who was there who was not white um, on for that crime. And so she just, so when they, when the grand jury meets and they indict her, they indict um George Pearl slash Lawrence Williams um, as probably the perpetrator, but she's an accessory, they say, even though Dick Dana and Octavia Dockery's fingerprints are found inside the house, <laughs> not hers. She's the one that goes on trial. And so my sense of it then, related to your question, is that when she was convicted, and I think they believe they had to do something. Even this jury of 12 white men didn't think she was 
responsible. And so they they didn't uh, choose a sentence. But by Mississippi state law, if she had been convicted of murder or an accessory to murder and the jury could not come up with a punishment, she was automatically given a life sentence. And so that's, that's what happened. But, I, you know, even they knew. And there were people, white people in the community that did not believe uh, in her guilt. It was very unsatisfying for them. But they, I guess there was a thought that, well, we'll, you know, we can satisfy the white population of Natchez if we, you know, convict this woman because the person who actually did it is already dead and we can't convict him. I mean, we can't, you know, that's sort of unsatisfying because what they would have liked to have done, you know, would have been to convict him and, and you know, give him the death penalty. That's, that's what would have happened. But they couldn't do it to her. Uh, I think they knew. Well, you know, the other thing that struck me uh, was that, um, again, it, this, this is my assumptions of the Jim Crow South, especially during the Depression era. Um, Emily Burns' sentence after eight years was suspended by uh, Governor Paul Johnson. And... Um, so what was the reason for suspending the sentence? Well, this is an interesting thing. There, were, there had been a citizen's petition, which I was unable to find, which I feel certain had the names of both white and black citizens on it. I just feel confident in that. But I couldn't find that. But... The, so there was, had been a petition of citizens from Natchez asking for her to be released, asking for her sentence to be suspended. And early in the, you know, early on, and the governors of Mississippi had what they called mercy courts. And they, and so Emily had tried a couple times before, but it was this governor that suspended her sentence after eight years. And he essentially believed in her innocence. And he was also more of a progressive southerner for the time. He was a poor, he had grown up among poor whites himself. And so I think he had, there was a, you know, a, uh, he was sensitive to the, the plight of poor people, um, which certainly Emily was, having been one himself. And I think he just believed in her innocence and he believed in the people who, who had signed this petition, and it was, you know, and he could make that decision. So at his Christmas time mercy court, that he, he said he, he released her, and, I mean, he suspended the sentence, uh, and, which means she could go home. As long as nothing, she never did anything again, which she had never done this to begin with, she could return. She could leave. And, I, I you know, that was something, that's where... That's all I had on Emily Burns when I first started, that she was allowed to leave prison. Then I didn't know what had happened to her. But it was doing the research in Natchez and meeting people there that I discovered that she had returned home and started her life over. Now, you, you had mentioned earlier, and I, I want to go back to it because, because of the, the history of uh, Parchman Penitentiary where Emily Burns uh, was sentenced. I've always thought a parson was was men only, but it was men and women. Um, and, and could you 
explain that and give us a little history of, 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 of the legacy of Parchman because it's, it's not a good one. No. Parchman Prison was founded in 1906 by... James K. Barterman, the governor of Mississippi, he was known as the White Chief. Um, and he wanted to establish essentially a, a penal institution that functioned like the plantations of the Old South. And, and so cause the, the state penitentiary had been in Jackson, and he, he, you know, he created this big plantation... <coughs> setting in the delta of Mississippi, it was something like 16,000 acres of land, and uh, and this is where they they intended to basically re-enslave African Americans, um, you know, uh, they, you know, uh, that they would be back under the control of, of, of white, uh, white men in some fashion, one way or the other, and and so the the farm, Parchman Farm, as it's often known, as was um, this place where um, they they grew cotton, um, just like in, and they had a white overseer, just as though it was you know they, this was the days before the Civil War, and so um, and and uh, it was a brutal place, and it was. Um, uh, a sad place, you know, I mean, it's like they, they had these camps for men and they were essentially death traps. They were, you know, poorly, uh, you know, they're wooden structures that had been around for a long time. There were, there was one because of electrical issues caught fire and, and, um, killed an entire group of men inside one of these camps. They couldn't get out of it. I, I found this thing. And I'd like to do some more research on that actually. Um, and then, you know, by the Depression, though, the numbers of, uh, of the incarcerated was growing quickly, and it was overwhelmingly African-American. Eighty-some percent of the men incarcerated in Parchman Prison were, were African-American men. Uh, and, and during the Depression, they continued to, the, the uh, numbers of, of uh, convicts there increased uh, by, like, was it increasing like 20% a year during the Depression? Because they were, you know, because people were, you know, particularly African Americans who were already impoverished and didn't have any, you know, weren't getting work, you know, maybe they would steal food or maybe they would, you know, something just to, you know, feed their families or whatever. And they would, they would be, you know, taken, you know, and convicted and put in prison for these things. So in that in that era where Emily Burns entered, she entered in, you know, December of 1932, as the numbers of prisoners were increasing, the state was cut, cut the budget by 40%, which meant that these people were in dire situation, dire, living in dire consequence uh, situation where... Um, even the even the warden of you know of Parchman Prison said, you know we can't do this. I mean we're already you know people are starving. They had an outbreak of malaria there. They had, I mean it was just really awful. And so this is you know so there are about twenty six hundred inmates there in the thirties and of which 
60 to 80, you know, over, it would fluctuate, were women. So it was a terrible time. It was a terrible time to, for her to have entered, for anyone to have been there at that time. And uh, the women who were there, you know, when they say hard labor, you're sentenced to hard labor, that's exactly what it was, because they would have those women up at, you know, up, you'd be up at four in the morning, you, you wouldn't get to bed until, get back until six in the evening, and it, you know, and you had, and the lights were out by 8.30, and during those, you know, uh, 12, 14 hour days, uh, the women there did a variety of things that, you know, depending on the season, they were picking cotton, um, they were canning food for all of those, uh, all of the people incarcerated at Parchman. They sewed all the prison uniforms, the mattress ticking, um, uh, you know, so they, they were worked really, really hard, those women. And, I, you know, and, and the sad part of this is as hard as that work was, some of those women took on what they called Sunday work rather than, you know, attend a, you know, a, a church kind of meeting, you know, a Bible meeting or whatever, which were offered on Sundays, they, these women would work just to reduce their sentences. It was an awful place. How did you become so passionate about uncovering a story that had been largely dormant for roughly 80 years? Well, well, when I, you know, I discovered it, you know, in the archives, in the state archives, what was in the files of the state archives were just some news articles about Goat Castle and the people who lived there. And that was what initially piqued my interest. But the deeper I got into it and the more I realized the injustice that had been done to Emily Burns, that just drove me. I, it really did. And I remember it was the fall of 2015 and I was about to sit down to write this book and I knew I didn't have a photograph of Emily Burns. I didn't know what she looked like. And I had been research, researching her life for four years. And I'd gotten close and gotten close. And then in October of 2015... After having met a couple of people, nobody related to her. I had heard that she had family members that, that were still attending Antioch Baptist Church, which was her church, on the outskirts of, of Natchez. And I decided I'm going to go to that church. And I, I thought, I've got to see if I can meet family, to see if there's a photograph or, or something. And it was when I went to the church... And I got to meet those family members who are now, like, I correspond with regularly, or at least one of the sisters that I met. And going to see that, going to their house, it was, I went there on Sunday and went to church. They invited me, one of the sisters' houses, they invited me over to her house the following day. And I said I'd never seen a photograph of her. And the, one of the sisters, there was, goes over and comes back with this really large photograph, and it's a photograph of their family from 1913. And she points to Emily's picture, and I, I can't tell you how thrilled I was mm -hmm. for that. 
And I, I get choked up every time I tell that story. It, it just, it is, it has affected. I'm sorry, I'm choking that's up now. Okay. That's okay. It meant everything to me because it was not a mugshot. It was a human being with her family. And that's who she was. That's who she was. She wasn't her incarceration. She wasn't her mugshot. She was this human being who had been treated unjustly. And I got to see her. And it made all the difference in my ability to write this book. All the difference. That that image, that meeting, that photograph of her, just it just made all the difference in me being able to write it. And I could do it with passion because I, I was passionate about recovering her story and telling the full, complete story of Emily Burns. And I know that this book was a better book because, because of that meeting. Well, uh, two, two, two things. One, and this, these are my words, not yours, but, but, but I always believe that history is the narrative that tells us who we were and gives us insight into who we are. So with that said, what does Goat Castle say about us then and what does it say about us now? Well, I think what it says about us then is that, you know, even in 1932, that the, this is really around the system of justice. The justice for descendants of slaves, she was only uh, two generations removed from slavery. Um, that, that things still operated um, in a, uh, by a double standard in the South. And sadly, what it says about us today is that we're still operating at a double standard when it comes to justice in our country and when it comes to how we treat people of color and how we criminalize people of color. Um, you know, uh, I think that's, you know, sort of one of the, the lessons to be learned. I mean, you can't read Emily's story and not see modern parallels. You know, a number of well-known authors and historians, including um, Heather Ann Thompson, who won the uh, Pulitzer Prize in 2017 for Blood in the Water, and um, John Grisham, who's written a few things that we know about, they both love the book. Yeah. And um, so now... I'm taking personal prerogative as host of the public rally to <laughs> ask you to unabashedly, as the author, <laughs> explain why Goat Castle is a must-read. <laughs> See, I've been I've been holding this question back since for now. I've been I've been waiting to ask you this. So. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I, I want to first. Can I just say that today is the official publication day, and you're the first interview I've had on. For the official, you know, launch of Goat Castle. I just want you to know that. And we're honored. We are definitely honored. Um, so, why is it a must read? It is, first of all, it's a good read. I think it's beautifully written. <laughs> good. It, See, I'm a writer, so I like when writers say that about themselves. So, I know that's good. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, 
it gives it gives you your history without beating your beating you over the head with it. It's uh, it's um, it's entertaining in parts and poignant in other parts, and um, you you'll learn a lot while enjoying reading the book. You'll be learning, but not feeling like oh, you know, it's it, you learn by reading what I think is a very um, readable, accessible narrative uh, of, that is both uh, based in in truth and fact, and um, that reads, as you said earlier, a little bit like fiction. You know, you know, one of the things that I was was struck by, and I wondered as I was reading the book. And by the way, um, it is beautifully written, and so I, I'm I'm going to uh, affirm the the author's commentary about her book. It is definitely beautifully written. Um, but one of the things that really fascinated me was how challenging was it to find some of this information because I'm assuming because it was, in, in essence, a miscarriage of justice to some degree, especially to the part of Ellie Burns, how detailed was the information that you found or how hard was it to uncover information? Well, you know, it, once you move beyond the newspaper coverage, which of which there was a significant amount of coverage, and uh, uh, even a magazine series um, in a true crime magazine called Master Detective did a five-part series on this crime. Beyond that, though, I what it involved was, was for me was having to basically do the genealogy of these people. I mean, you know, to, to look in and to use local records um, for just the slightest detail, whether, you know, it was a city directory, for example, a city directory would tell me, you know, uh, the race of a person, their occupation, and where exactly they lived in the city. So when, and, and so when I would go to Natchez, I would basically, I would like, you know, now we have GPS, so I would put it in the GPS and I would go to that location and find that find it and so I you know so there were things like I would do like that like you know I, I really wanted to know the geography and the landscape and where things were in relation to one another and that that required that I spend time in Natchez and travel its roads um, in terms of the specifics of individuals uh, especially for someone like Emily Burns who uh, who I did learn had a fifth grade education and the way I learned that was from the records of her entry into Parchman Prison, because they would they would have this you know once they enrolled them into the prison they filled out paperwork on them and so I learned that she had a fifth grade education from this one piece of paper and so you know it was it was it was trying it was finding all these little disparate pieces and and basically putting the puzzle together so it formed an image that I could like write about. Well. Uh, on behalf of the public rally, uh, we are honored to be your first interview. Um, and I think the first time you and I had an interview, we talked about doing this. So we made, we made good on that. So I'm glad we had you. Yeah, back. we did. Yeah. <laughs> Professor Karen Cox, author, Goat Castle, a true story of m murder, race, and the Gothic South. Thank you so much for coming back to the public rally. Oh, thank you for having me, Byron. That was Professor Karen Cox. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. But before my closing remarks, 
Today would have been jazz great Thelonious Monk's 100th birthday. We will honor him by playing one of his classics, Straight No Chaser. centennial birth of note. October 6th was the birthday of civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer. Though Martin Luther King is generally thought of as the face of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, no one, in my view, personified the movement like Fannie Lou Hamer. At the age of six, she began her career in the Mississippi Delta as a sharecropper. At the age of 12, she dropped out of school to pursue sharecropping full-time. In 1962, with only sharecropping on her resume, she attended a civil rights meeting urging African Americans to vote. Soon after, along with 17 others, Fannie Lou Hamer went to Indianola, Mississippi with the goal of registering to vote. Not only was her registration denied, 
but she was also fired from her sharecropping job and forced to move from the property she called home for nearly 20 years. From that moment, Fannie Lou Hamer would dedicate her life to civil rights working for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. This commitment included death threats, being shot at, and severely beaten. One such beating resulted in permanent kidney and eye damage. In 1964, Mrs. Hamer helped found the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which was established in opposition to her state's all-white delegation to that year's Democratic Convention. She brought the civil rights struggle in Mississippi to the attention of an entire nation during a televised session of the convention. Mrs. Hamer's testimony at the convention was so powerful, President Lyndon Johnson hastily called an impromptu press conference at the White House, which turned out to be a commemoration of the nine-month anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy so that television news coverage would switch from covering Mrs. Hamer. The motivation that propelled Fannie Lou Hamer into action was a simple but profound statement for anyone seeking change. As she so often said, quote, All my life I've been sick and tired. Now I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. In many ways, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired was the mantra of the 1960s. From 1960 to 1968, there was a major grassroots movement each year, from civil rights to free speech to Vietnam to poverty. Americans were saying in a loud and diverse voice they were sick and tired of being sick and tired. Was that not the ethos of the Declaration of Independence, abolition of slavery, and women's suffrage? When one thinks of the American narrative, the fledgling stages of change always began with an individual or a group declaring they too were sick and tired of being sick and tired. So in a year where the public discourse debates the fate of Confederate monuments, might we consider erecting another monument? A monument to a woman of courage and conviction. But it should only be led by those who are truly sick and tired of being sick and tired. Somehow I don't think Fannie Lou Hamer would want it any other way. For she knew I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired is the only path for seeking change in that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. And we close tonight with a portion of Fannie Lou Hamer's address at the 1964 Democratic Convention. It's time to work my feet. And the state highway patrolman ought to the first Negro had beat to sit on my feet, to keep me from working my feet. 
I began to scream and one white man got up and began to beat me in my head and tell me to hurt. One white man, my dress had worked up high. He walked over and pulled my dress, I pulled my dress down and he pulled my dress back up. I was in jail when Medgar Evers was murdered. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to